Let us then this morning return to the portion of God's Word that we read together from Paul's Epistle to the Hebrews. And we may take as our text words that you'll find in chapter 4 and at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. These words in their context, and as the Spirit of the Lord would be pleased to enable us as we meditate on his truth this morning together. The title that we give for our sermon is A Great High Priest Requires a Great Profession. A Great High Priest Requires a Great Profession. The Jews quite rightly revered the Old Testament. They still do. They revered the Mosaic law, they revered the Levitical priesthood, and all the sacrifices and the, sacrifice, the sacrificial system that God had given to them under the Old Testament dispensation. They, after all, were God's chosen people. He had given these things to them and to no one else. It was unique to them. And all these things were still being practiced at the time of Christ's coming. They were still being practiced, even if it wasn't in spirit worship, they were still going through the external motions, ceremonially, mechanically. They were going through the sacrifices and trying to adhere to the law. But with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, all these things, wonderful as they were, all these religious sacrifices and ceremonies, they were done away with because they were only signposts. They were only markers. They were only what we call types heralding and looking forward to the great antitype who would supersede all these things. They were pointing to something better, something grander, something far more magnificent than the high priestly robes and all the falderoys of the temple. And if we want to understand what the epistle to the Hebrews is mainly about, we can sum it up in one word. We can take the word better and say that Hebrews is about something better. It is saying to those who Paul is writing to that we have something far better. Twelve times it's used in the epistle to the Hebrews. We have better promises than the Old Testament dispensation. We have a better covenant. We have a better sanctuary. We have a better sacrifice. And in context of our text, we have a better priest. And these Christians were wavering in their faith. Remember, these are the first century 
Christians, the first century church, they're all converted Jews. They've been brought up under the Levitical law and the Aaronic priesthood. They've been converted and the Judaizing teachers are saying to them, this is weak. There's something deficient in this new religion that you have. Come back to the old ways. Look how lovely the sacrifices. Look how grand the high priest is. And Paul's saying to them, you've got something better. Hold fast. Stand firm. So his epistle is to, is to remind them of the superiority of Jesus Christ in all things. It's to warn them against wavering and returning to empty rituals, empty ceremonies that mean nothing, and to encourage them to persevere. He said, they'll keep coming. They'll keep coming and tell you your worship's dull. There's nothing exciting in it. You hold fast to the fact that you have something better. So the Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, emphasizes particularly the greatness of the priestly office, the priesthood of Jesus Christ, compared to what was under the Old Testament dispensation, compared to the ironic line, who were only sinful men. And we know the, the three great offices of Christ as the redeemer of his church. He is the, the great prophet of his church. He is the great king of his church. And he's the great priest. But he's a great high priest. And Paul says, seeing then, after everything I've written, after all the arguments, after everything that I've given you to consider, think of the greatness of Jesus Christ, the great high priest of the New Testament dispensation, and love him, serve him, obey him, stand fast in your faith because he is far greater, more perfect, far better than anything else. And I want to bring four things to your attention this morning regarding this great high priest who requires a great profession. The first thing that our text presents to us is the reality of the great high priest. The reality of the great high priest, seeing then that we have a great high priest. If you follow Paul's strand of thought regarding the priestly office of Christ right throughout Hebrews, you'll see that it begins in chapter 2, verse 17. This is where he introduces this truth that he's trying to impress on the Hebrews that Christ is a great high priest, wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. And from here to chapter 10, six or seven chapters, he is forcefully ramming home into the minds of these Hebrews the reality of this. It's a fact. It's a truth. Your religion, the Christian religion, does have a high priest. Despite the false accusations of all these Judaizing teachers, where is he? Where's the sacrifices? Where's his robes? Where's his work? What's he doing? The reality is that the Christian, the New Testament church, has a great high priest. It's a factual reality. 
It's unequivocal. It's incontrovertible. And these Hebrew believers, they didn't just have an ordinary priest under the Old Testament dispensation. There was lots of priests who would perform their work in the temple. So they have something far better than an ordinary priest. There was one high priest, beginning with Aaron, dozens thereafter until Christ's time. You don't just have an ordinary priest. You don't just have a high priest. You have a great high priest. Greater, more eminent, more dignified, more qualified than anything that these Judaizing teachers are seeking to persuade you to return to. Your high priest is not just equal to Aaron. He's far superior. He's infinitely greater. A supreme high priest. The greatest ever high priest. All before him were mere sinful men that were pointing to the need for a great and perfect high priest. Don't let these false teachers into your mind. Don't let them sway your thoughts. But this, of course, begs the question. If we're convinced of the reality the truthfulness of a great high priest. It surely begs in our questions, as it did in these Hebrew believers that Paul is writing to, why do we need a high priest? We need to grasp the reality in order to be thankful for the fact that we have Jesus Christ, a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We also need to grasp the reality of why we need him. Why we still need a great high priest. And we need to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. All the way back to the fall of man. Because before the entrance of sin into the world, there was no need of a high priest. Adam had perfect communion with God. Required no intercessor, no mediator, no one to intervene. Imagine. Perfect communion. Nothing coming between them. No sacrifices required. And then everything changed when sin entered into the world. The great fall of man. And because of God's holiness, no sinner can approach God. It's impossible. Sin is that great offence to God. His eternally offended justice. He has holier eyes than to look upon it. He must shut sinners out from his holiness. So in order for God to accept sinners, there must be an intercessor. There must be someone mediating, someone acting on their behalf, a holy go-between, a sinless pontiff, pontiff in the correct form of the word a sinless pontiff who can intercede between sinners and a holy God because if sinners went of themselves in their presumption they would find out that God is a consuming fire so the sacrificial system the Aaronic priesthood was established to reveal that intercessory atonement must take place and that all man's intercession and all man's animal sacrifices, the tens of millions of sacrifices 
that were offered during the Old Testament dispensation could never atone for sin. Great and grand though the robes of the high priest were, the ceremonies of the Day of Atonement, all it did was point forward to the great high priest. The once and for all perfect sacrifice. That if you are one of God's blood-bought people, if you are one of Christ this morning, that's the high priest you have. That's the reality for you. It pointed forward to the great high priest. So that leads us secondly on to, well, who is this high priest? If we know the reality of the great high priest, that we have one and we need one, we see secondly the identity of the great high priest. Paul tells them and he tells us, the identity of the great high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. There's the identity of the great high priest. And this title that Paul gives him in the words of our text reveals two wonderful things, two wonderful doctrines, two wonderful truths to the Lord's people this morning. First of all, the great high priest is a man. He is Jesus. Jesus, his human name, if we can put it like that. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, said the angel to the mother of our Lord, meaning saviour. Thou shalt call him saviour because he shall save his people from their sins. This Jesus whom Paul preaches to the Hebrews, this Jesus who was crucified, this Jesus who has risen, this Jesus who has ascended, this Jesus in whom alone there is forgiveness of sins, this Jesus through whom reconciliation can be made between a sinner and a holy God so that a sinner can approach God, not in his consuming fire, but accepted in the beloved. And all because of his substitutionary work. All because of his atoning sacrificing on the cross. You see, as Paul says, we have a better high priest. We have a great high priest. We have a great high priest who didn't just offer a sacrifice. He offered himself. The uniqueness of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. He is both the great high priest and he is the acceptable sacrifice. The sacrifice of himself to satisfy the eternally offended justice of God. And this is vitally important for these Hebrews. And it's vitally important for the Lord's people this morning that Jesus, at the right hand of God, is a true man. He is bone of our bone. He is flesh of our flesh. He is man of very man. He is God of very God. And it's vitally important because in order for there to be forgiveness of sin, in order for the sacrifice to be accepted, the sacrifice had to be in the nature of the sinner. Jesus the man. He is the last Adam. The first Adam brought mankind into an estate of sin and, sin and misery. The last Adam restored that which he took not away. He sacrificed in his humanity. 
He sacrifices himself. You see, theologically, a, a purely divine sacrifice is, is impossible, and a purely divine sacrifice would not act, satisfy the justice of God, because that would not have been substitution. Substitution has to be in the nature of the sinner. The wonder of what we call the, the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ, one divine person, but two natures. Unmingled, unmixed, distinct human nature and divine nature. And so his sacrifice is accepted. A substitute. As a man in the nature of those who he bore in his own body to the tree. But that's only half the wonder of this truth as to who the identity of the great high priest is. He's not just Jesus the man. He's the son of God. Can you grasp that truth? That the one crucified on the cross is the eternal son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity without beginning and without end. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of God, his divine title. Not by adoption, as the Lord's people are, not by creation because he's uncreated. This reflects that he is equal in power and glory with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The same in substance, equal in power and and in glory. Oh, he's a man. But he's not a mere man. You see, we need to we need to often study these small words in scripture and small words in our subordinate standards. Question eighty two in the shorter catechism is Is any man able to perfectly keep the law of God? And the answer is no, no mere man. Ah, but there is a perfect man who kept the law perfectly. Jesus, the Son of God, he's no mere man. He is that divine person, that sinless, perfect saviour. You see, the high priest in the great day of atonement, when he divested himself of his fine priestly robes and went in only wearing his linen garments, into the holiest of holies with the blood. Beyond the thick veil of division. The congregation never knew whether he would come out. They would never know whether or not the sacrifice would be accepted. Because as we're told in verse 1. He was taken from among men. He's ordained for, for men. And he first of all had to make up sacrifices for himself. And they would rejoice when they heard the bells and the pomegranates at the bottom of the high priestly robes as he, as he put them back on again and came back out into the congregation. How greatly blessed the people are, the joyful sound. that No, they heard the sound that told them that the, the sacrifice had been accepted. Well, our great high priest is accepted. His once and for all sacrifice is accepted. 
And in these two glorious titles that identifies our great high priest, it should give the redeemed people of God this morning, those who know that they are blood-bought of Christ Jesus, this should give you the greatest confidence, the greatest assurance, because his sacrifice is acceptable. The Father has his eternal wrath propitiated. One of the most beautiful words in Scripture. It means he's no longer angry. His wrath has been turned away. Eternally. Because it's the Son of God who has entered in with his sacrifice. In the nature of his people because he is Jesus, the Son of God. Does that not give you confidence this morning? Not in yourself, but the one who is your great high priest. How gloriously he executes his office. How eternally he executes his office. But we see thirdly, where does this work take place? We've looked at the reality of the great high priest. We've looked at the identity of the great high priest. Paul also tells us thirdly the locality of the great high priest. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. That's where Jesus the Son of God is. The sacrifice of course we know where the sacrifice took place. Sacrifice took place at Calvary. At Golgotha. Calvary is the, the Latin for skull and Golgotha is the Hebrew for skull, the place of a skull. His broken body, his shed blood, his atoning death. The broken body of a lifeless saviour hanging on the cross at Calvary. There's the sacrifice. But it's the empty tomb that confirms the Father's acceptance. As he tells the Romans, he was crucified, he was delivered up for our offences, but he was raised again for our justification. The empty tomb tells us of the acceptability of his sacrifice, because we we might say, if we can say it reverently, in the in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the temple sacrifices, when the when the high priest would would make the offering of the animal on the altar and slay the animal, it was no good lying there. It was no good for the blood to be spilled around the altar. The blood had to be taken somewhere. The blood had to be taken once a year on the great day of atonement into the holiest of holies and sprinkled upon the mercy seat. Signifying that only the blood would turn away the wrath of God. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. Without the death of Christ, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And of course, this, this points 
and foreshadows the the ascension of Jesus Christ, if we can say, with his blood sacrificed into the holiest of holies. We will sing in, in closing the wonderful psalm of Christ's ascension. Thou hast, O Lord, most gloriously ascended up on high and in triumph, victorious led captive captivity. Thou hast received gifts for men. And how does he receive gifts for men? Because of the acceptability of his sacrifice, because of the ongoing work of intercession based on his own blood. What was the Father's cry of acceptance? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I am judicially and eternally satisfied with this death. The blood of bulls, of goats, of ashes of an heifer can never take away sin. Ah, but Jesus, the Son of God, I'm well pleased with him. And it's on the basis of this work, the basis of this sacrifice, that Christ's work continues in heaven. We sang in Psalm 110, he's a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Christ appears before the Father, pleading his own finished work, his own blood sacrifice. That's not pleading as you and I would plead. He pleads as an equal because he's the son of God. He's not a mere priest. He's not a high priest. He's a great high priest. Because this work takes place in heaven and this work is taking place in heaven for his blood-bought people. And Paul is encouraging these Hebrew converts reminding them that Christ though we cannot see him with the eye of the body we see him with the eye of faith entering into the holiest of holies in the heavens and there he remains continually exalted in the heavens sat down at the right hand of God the Father forever interceding for his people can you see him by faith interceding for a wretch like you your great high priest now no words are necessary between the father and the son in this intercession commentators are divided some view that there'll be there'll be nothing heard some say that we will perhaps hear him for our own uh, encouragement and to glorify him in heaven But however it is done, Christ is interceding on the basis of his death, of his nail-pierced hands and his nail-pierced feet and his pierced side and his pierced brow. And he says, preserve my people, keep them in the world. Remember the promise in in the great high priestly prayer. I pray not that thou would take them out of the world, but that thou would keep them from the evil. That's his prayer for his church this morning. In this wicked, hateful world, can you see your high priest 
pleading for you, not corporately as the church, but for you as an individual. This person is mine. They are blood-bought. Keep them in the world. Forgive them of all their sins. Uphold them in their trials. Bless them because of what they are. Bless them because of my sacrifice, Father. That should rejoice the hearts of the Lord's people this morning. The indescribably glorious great high priest. You've all had difficult weeks. And on the first morning of a new week in your lives, you come into the Lord's house, you read God's word, and you think of him in the presence of the Father interceding for you. So if we know the reality of the great high priest, if we know the identity of the great high priest, if we know the locality of the great high priest, that this intercession is taking place in heaven, we see fourthly and finally, we have a responsibility to the great high priest. Surely, if he is such a great high priest, we have a responsibility to him. And that responsibility is, let us hold fast our profession. That's what Paul's whole argument is. Seeing then, seeing if, the, if this is the case, and I've laid before you the incomparable wonder of the great high priest, Jesus the man, Jesus the son of God, if I've convinced you that he's now entered into the presence of the Father, into the holiest realms of heaven, and he's there making intercession for you with his broken body and shed blood, surely you can hold fast against the Judaizing teachers, against their threats, against their delusions, against their loud, threatening voices, let us hold fast our profession. What's this profession that Paul is wanting these Hebrews to hold onto? Well, it's quite simply this. We're not relying on the works of sacrifices. We're not relying on the works of any man. We're not relying on any worldly priest to intercede for us. We are relying on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And the world doesn't like that. Because they want to have their own oar and their own salvation. The profession is that I am saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. My profession is that this is all of the sovereign grace of a sovereign God, not of works, because I've got nothing to boast in myself. That's the profession. My sins are washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. Coming to church doesn't save me. Reading the Bible doesn't save me. Putting money in the offering plate doesn't save me. These are good things. But your profession is, I am relying on the one who this morning is in the presence of the Father pleading his finished work. I'm relying on that work and I am laying hold upon it by faith which in itself is a sovereign gift of God's grace. That profession has a, has a very simple name. 
but the great high priest himself gives to it in John's Gospel, chapter 3. Your profession is, I'm born again. That's the profession of the Christian. I'm born again of God's grace. I'm a new creature in Jesus Christ. That's the very definition of what a Christian is. Someone who is born again. The late and eminent Reverend John McSween, when he was said, Do you think, when he was asked, Do you think the man's a born again Christian? He said, Is there any other kind? We must never qualify the word Christian with born again Christian as if there's any other type. Nicodemus, you must be born again. because you're born again the profession that you make is that I will walk according to God's laws not man's I will live a holy life as best as I can by God's grace I will live a sanctified life according to God's grace I will imbibe the doctrines of truth and I will stand fast against the world who tells me otherwise so if this is the profession Paul concludes, well, is it not worth holding fast to? If Christ is a worthy high priest, if he's the great high priest, then surely this profession we make in him is worth holding fast to. It's very strong in the Greek. It means using great strength to seize hold of. We might use the phrase, hold on with all your might. With all your strength. Hold on with both hands. This is valuable, this profession. This is valuable and this is precious. Let us hold tightly, as he says elsewhere, lest at any time we should let it slip. Slip through our fingers. Drop it. Let it slide. No, hold fast to this profession. Don't let it waver. Don't let go of it. Don't be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. He's saying to the Hebrews, and the word of God says to God's people this morning, if you come under attack, and you will come under attack for this profession, it takes strength, it takes courage, it takes resilience, it takes grace, it takes loyalty to stand firm and hold fast. Does Christ not deserve it? If Christ is your saviour and Christ is your great high priest, does he not deserve you to hold fast to the profession that you make? That's what you do at the Lord's table, isn't it? You make a public profession that you're saved by faith in Christ's finished work. And we hold fast to that profession twice a year at our communion season. The challenge is to hold fast for 52 weeks of the year. And that's what we must do constantly, day after day, never being ashamed of our great high priest, never being ashamed of our profession. 
But after all, he's not ashamed of his people because he's pleading for them before the Father. And he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Oh, let us not be ashamed to hold fast to our profession that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of glory and that we are born again in him. We say a few words in conclusion. In our own day and age, the attacks are becoming ever more frequent, ever more virulent. And there's one thing for sure. If the Christian, the blood-bought child of God, holds fast to their profession, oh, they will be hated. The Christian that's inflexible, the Christian that stands firm, the Christian that cannot, as these Hebrews were being persuaded, to compromise. Oh, you, you can give a little, be a bit softer, give a little bit of leeway, be, give some compromise. Oh, the world will hate it when you say, no, I'm holding fast. I'm holding fast to my profession. You see, the world wants you to compromise. The moment you compromise, you become a hypocrite. And the world will smile at your face and despise you for being a hypocrite. But they'll recognize your integrity if you hold fast and they'll hate you. I know which I would rather. Beware when men speak well of you. Not deliberately. We don't go to antagonize. We go in love. We go as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. But the world will hate a steadfast, holding fast, immovable Christian. And what's our encouragement? Well, we think of the one who is the great high priest, his identity, Jesus, the Son of God. Oh, how he held fast for his people. He held fast for 33 years in his life, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He held fast in the Garden of Gethsemane. He held fast when he drove the nails into his hands. He held fast when he was tempted by the devil. Can we? Will we this week hold fast to him? May the Lord bless his word to us. Let us pray. O Lord in heaven, who is sufficient for these things? For thy people are sinners saved by grace, poor men in the dust, beggars on the dunghill, now adopted into the family of God, entitled to all the privileges that the elder brother has won in his victory. Forgive our weaknesses. Forgive our 
cowardice in the face of the enemy. Forgive our betrayal of one who deserves faithful soldiers, faithful servants. We pray for grace and for strength on the week upon which we have just entered, that we would be found as thy people this day and the rest of this week, holding fast to our profession that Jesus Christ is a risen Lord in whom we have salvation from our sins. Bless thy word to our souls this day. Forgive our iniquities and our sins in the holy place and accept us only in him who is the beloved. Amen. Amen. We close our worship this Lord's Day morning. We sing that glorious psalm, Psalm 68, four stanzas, verses 18 to 20. Four stanzas of Psalm 68. Thou hast, O Lord, most glorious, <coughs> ascended up on high, and in triumph victorious led captive captivity. Thou hast received gifts for men for such as did rebel. Yea, even for them, that God the Lord in midst of them might dwell. 18 to 20 to God's praise.
us stand to receive the Lord's benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.